Yes. Welcome to the No Ideas Original Podcast featuring Shanon, Mr. Rob, and Zane. What's up, Rob? How you doing? I'm good, bro. I'm feeling great, man. The weather's starting to change. It's starting to feel good up here. I'm starting to get to that spring fever. So, it's going well, man. Speaking of spring fever, man, I think I got like a, I got a cold or something that I have for the last couple of days that's kicking my butt. Yeah, it probably is because yeah. temperature's been 70, 30. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Been up and down, up and down. So that, that could throw you off a little bit. Yo, I had a, a, a eventful day, man. I had um, the plumber come out. My, um, yeah. my sewage ejector in the house went. And anytime I call this plumbing company to come out, I always know for a fact, like, yo, they gonna hit me in the head. So you're in replace my sewage pump ejector. And yeah. then the same day, yeah, same day, the accountant calls and tells me what my tax situation is. So it's been an interesting day, but I'm here. Bumpy road, please, son. That's all right. Nah, yo, I wish, I wish there was some ups. I wish there was some ups. It was, this was trajectory. It's all downhill today. No, but you know what? I'm like, yo, I'm blessed and I'm fortunate enough to be in a position where, you know, there you it's go. what it is. I can get the pump fixed. I can pay whatever my taxes are. Life will go on. But how about you, man? What you up to? Um. You know, just like I said, barking on the weather changing. I'm ready to start my gardening. Um, had a nice talk with my brother-in-law, Dougie, um, from uh, 914 Prince. And he, he he's discussing with me some, some stuff coming up. So I'm looking more to acclimate myself into the world, so to speak, from an um, work standpoint. Um, you feel your health is good? You feel like you're ready to get back out Yeah, there? I mean, I'm, I'm past, I'm past the six-month mark. I'm in, I'm in my seventh month. You know, Janelle and I talked about, you know, take the year off. And I, that's coming in August. So before you know, August is here. So yeah. I want to be kind of ahead of the curve that when August is here, you know, if something pops up, I can hit, I can hit the road moving. You know what I'm saying? And I ain't got to catch up too much. Um, Yo, we... We we got we got a, a dope one tonight. Like I'm 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 excited about this because good old Bronx boys. Yeah, this this brother we got tonight, man. He embodies a lot of the things that I love. So yeah. we got Ralph Rolls pulling up, man. He gonna pull up and join us. We are gonna have a conversation. This brother's a master percussionist, musician, entrepreneur, Bronxite. Bronxite. Jack of all trades. Impeccable aimless. Greatest cookies in the world. <laughs> What's, up, What's up, gentlemen? How y'all doing, man? Thank you, thank you, man. Thank you. I was telling Rob, I said, you know, man, Mr. Rowe is the most prompt person I've ever met in my life. I, I got on earlier to check the technology at like two o'clock and he was on. <laughs> And he was like, wait a minute, I'm in a, I gotta get to the other meeting, but I, I appreciate that. Yeah, well, thank you. Um, I've been I've been grinding hard, and I, I popped on earlier today because I thought, I knew I had a meeting with you, and I actually mm-hmm. saw the time and read it wrong, oh. and, and and it caused me to be three minutes late to my other meeting, but it, it you know, oh. it was all good, you know, but, uh, you know, I did, when I saw you, I went, wait a minute. I think I'm in the wrong room right now. <laughs> but thank, so, thank you for coming on and telling me because I probably would have sat there for about another two, three more. 
Um, man, so we got a lot, we got a lot we want to talk to you about. Um, yes, sir. Like, talk to you about you know uh, growing up in the Bronx. We want to talk to you about uh, being a musician. We want to talk to you, of course, about uh, being an entrepreneur. So, but you know, let's let's get started. Just tell us a little bit about you know where you grew up at in the Bronx and what it was like for you growing up in the Bronx. Because I'm from the Bronx also. Rob is from the Bronx. I'm originally from the South Bronx, born and raised on uh, 168th Street and Union Avenue. Um, that's that's my old stomping grounds. So no matter where I'm going, I always still rep the Bronx to the day I die. Yeah, and I, I moved around a little bit too, man. 156 uh, St. Mary's Projects right there, Jackson Avenue. And then I moved up to the Co-op City area, Boston Road area, and that's where, that's really where I got my bones at, up in that area. But okay. I'm, I'm full Bronx, the Bronx bread, my life, straight, straight, straight like that, Bronx bread. You know what's so funny, man, because most of the people that I meet or have met from the Bronx, man, we have this, this undying dedication to our borough, you know, and I think that's probably you know, throughout New York City, when you grew up somewhere, you know, you got brothers from Queens, it's like they just diehard Queens. Um, but the Bronx, you know, you guys are a little bit younger than me. The Bronx always got a bad rap. Always. You know, even now, when I'm in another country doing <laughs> interviews, they are still talking about 1975 Bronx. Oh, like, Bronx we, like, yeah, they, I'm yeah. serious. So, and you know, and I very professionally and eloquently speak about my dog and its content in a way that is always going to be uh, a positive uh, face for where we came up. You and I both know, oh, excuse me, all three of us know that if you grew up in the Bronx, you can do anything at all because of the level of energy and uh, the things that we've gone through on the negative and positive side. Mm -hmm. So when I talk about the Bronx, I talk about the fact that we got one of the biggest botanical societies in America. Yeah. I talk about the fact that we have one of the biggest zoological societies in America. I talk, you know, no, I talk about the Yankees. You know, <laughs> That's right. I talk about hip hop. I talk about things that people can immediately, you know, grab grab hold of and, re and relate to right. because and many times more than most they go oh I didn't, I didn't know that so it changes it immediately changes and then I'll talk about myself and the place I'm up you know because it's important that you know we give that that uh, big up to the Bronx as much as you know you know we, we are the voice of change because we are out there doing things to make things positive you know, that's right. We are not part of any problems. We're part of the solutions, and that's some, something that I'm very proud of as, as a Bronxite. You know, right. I grew up in Bronx River Houses. Bronx River Houses. Uh, yeah, I, 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 uh, me and uh, Africa Grand Body grew up in the same building, aka Lance okay. Taylor. I was gonna ask you, was you in Zulu Nation back then? I was not in Zulu Nation. My mother would have <laughs> broke both my legs and my <laughs> if she would have, you know, because my mother was probably like your mother strict strict go for it yep okay and anybody said well you a mama's boy i said let me pull out my wallet and give you my platinum mama's boy card because i am a mama's boy that's my mama and that's, right. that's the woman that i've always looked up to she raised four kids by herself in bronx of the houses and, and i give her those props yes so she was she was not 
she would not have been comfortable with me running with Zuni Mitch at all. Mm. Right, you right. Know, um, but the experience of growing up in a area that is one of the foregrounds for hip hop um, was uh, kind of amazing to be able to talk about what I've actually seen right. as, mm. as a culture, as a music genre and a culture that I saw it. I literally was there to see these things go on. And it's kind of amazing that is it is now a multi multi billion dollar yeah. you know uh, genre and operation from clothing to music to dance to art you know to so many different directions it's gone in, you know and then again it's the Bronx yeah. you know being from the Bronx it's it's always a true Bronx tale when you hear the stories of where we come from because the Bronx is. An imaginary place, like in order to live in the Bronx, you had to have an imagination and a great vision. You know what I mean? That's one of the things I wanted to ask you about. You know, what, what, what's a, what? Talk about vision and imagination, and how important those words are and what they mean. Oh, well, one of the things that I talk about, I have the, the distinct honor and pleasure and ability teach master classes all around the world. One thing that I start with is where I came from. Uh, coming out of the Bronx, coming out of Bronx River. And I, I know that's that's a great topic that we'll probably keep coming back to. But vision and imagination is something that I equate directly with passion. Um, so many folks, as you know, that have become successful in, in things that people thought they were never really successful in, had a vision and an imagination, but they coupled it with their passion. And passion is such a strong definition of a, of a spiritual word and a presence that with that, you you said something when I was in, in the backstage about getting into your, your, your garden. And I'm like, yeah, of course. And I'm like, that's what I'm talking about right Yes, here. sir. Yes, okay. sir. Okay. Um, so having the imagination and the vision and the passion all coupled together is what builds um, ideas and entrepreneurs. Because passion, and I, I've said this many, many times, passion has no expiration at all. Passion you is... Yeah, you can use it when you want to at any time. Right, but the passion will drive you to, to, to fuel your imagination and your vision. Because you know, no matter what people say, you know, coming up, the pressure of someone saying, man, what the, what are you guarding, man? What are you guarding? <laughs> I get that too. Just, just Hold on. on. You, you got to play basketball all these years, now you're growing tomatoes? <laughs> you see what I'm saying? So when I was coming up, I was fortunate enough to have the mother I had. She was very independent. She was the mother and the father in my house. So it was my older sister Yvette, my brother Howie, my sister Yvonne, and then me. And because my mother and all of our mothers, is, are you guys parents? Yes. Okay, so you get it a thousand percent what I'm about to say. I didn't know this as a kid. But when you become a parent, a mother or a father, you are in constant protection and build mode. Right. 
constant, like when they don't even know you are. Right. You're in constant and protection, always. That's just, you could be having a conversation with your child in their face like this, and they don't have a clue that you are not only protecting them, but you are planning something for their lives. That's right. And I didn't know that, so my mother will come home from work, and sometimes you can see her just disappear into this place of thinking. Not only did she have a, a regular job, but she ran the tenant patrol, the tenant association, she ran the garden program. See that? Wow. And she ran <laughs> and she ran the summer youth program and she was the crossing guard on the corner with her second job. Wow. She helped Bronx with it down. Yeah. Right. So my brother and I was just talking uh, about a week ago and something I didn't even know. He just told me this. My mother would have to post a note on our door to say, please don't come to after nine o'clock. Because they wouldn't go to the rent office. They would come to my mother because she knew they knew that she would be the one to help out. So she had that passion for the community. She had a passion for us, which allowed us as young people to have our own vision and imagination to have to come from Because without that, without that person to look up to, I don't I don't know where I would have been. I don't know because the allowance, like you've allowed your kids and I've allowed my child to right. be a certain way and also to reel them in has spawned their imagination and their vision because of our foundation of what we did. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and I didn't know, I didn't even think about any of this until I became a dad. Yeah. Speaking of, speaking of passion, did you, you know, did you find your way into music because music was your passion or you stumbled into it? And, you know, because there are many things that I, growing up, I was passionate about or I enjoyed, but it wasn't, it wasn't my calling, you know, and I knew it wasn't my calling. Not because I wasn't good at it, it's just because I didn't desire to do it lifelong. So I'm just wondering from your perspective with music, the first time you decided you was going to play the drums, did you say this is something I'm passionate about and something I want to do professionally? You asked some amazing questions. I just need to say that right now. <laughs> okay, so when I became a drummer, it was because I did everything my brother did. He was the example in my house of a, the male figure in my house who was always going to Howie. So, and my my brother Howie was always getting something. So, and I, as a kid, I don't know that, and I didn't right. know all these things until I got older. But my mother allowed him to have a drum set in, in our bedroom. So now I'm I'm like, okay, wow, there's a drum set. My brother's playing drums. All the stuff he listened to growing up, he had a reel-to-reel. He would splice music. He had all the Motown, all the, all the pop stuff he had on his on his reel-to-reel. But he would cut the commercials out and just have, I guess, his own mixtape. <laughs> so um, watching him play, I'm like, Howie, can I play the drums? And he said, yeah, no, you can play you're left-handed, so don't switch the drums around because oh, that makes the room is too small. So yeah. the reason why I play open-handed is because I, I, he wouldn't let me switch the drums around. So I would sit down at the drums and, the, and the, the image of having fun behind the drums was the first time that I saw the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan show. So I, like I said, I'm a little older than you are. So I was a little kid. I was a little... Hold on, that's my phone. I was a little kid. And I saw, I saw Ringo doing his thing, so I just sat behind the drums and would imitate this smile that this man had because he just looked like he was enjoying himself so much. 
and I would just play you just play play over, <laughs> over and over that's all I knew and then one day I came home and the drums was gone and I'm like okay so I asked my mother I said mommy do you know where the drums are she said don't ask me ask your brother so at the time my brother was had just started dating this girl that he was with every second of the day so I knew if he wasn't home he was at her house so I went and found him and I'm like Yo, Howie, what, what happened to the drums? He said, well, listen, I had to sell the drums because Michelle is, is, is pregnant and I'm going to be a father and mommy put me out. Bro. I said, what happened to the drums? That's all I was saying. I didn't care about like, I ain't worried about your life. That's nice. Where's the drums? Right, exactly. Uh, so he sold the drums, but the passion for playing had bit me by then. And I was, I was like nine, 10 years old, but I wanted to play drums. But the silver lining to the story of my brother, just to let you know, they just celebrated their 50th wedding anniversary. Oh, congratulations just to him. him. Congratulations <laughs> yeah. to me, Yeah, yeah, so just celebrated. Couldn't be, it's not even a month ago, they just wow. celebrated. So he stayed with her. That was just, honestly just true love. So I could see why he lost his mind. He, 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 he literally lost his mind. But there were people in my neighborhood who had drums, and I was friends with all of them. And they would let me play. So I would go to their house and play. And one of the biggest influences is the guy that lived uh, on Bronx River Avenue uh, in the uh, 1440s, name is Ricky Williams. Ricky Williams was about six foot, is about six foot four. Uh, he had a drum set, but that wasn't even his main instrument. His main instrument was organ. But he would let me, he wouldn't let anybody else but me come up and watch him play drums. And this dude's grooves were the baddest out of everybody. And I would just want to absorb it. But what was amazing about Ricky is Ricky was blind. He'd been blind from a kid. And he played everything and still does. And he, he never let that be a problem for him. So I've actually incorporated what I learned from him in my master classes because it's an important uh, attribute to learn about your senses and lack thereof. So I teach those things, but that's how the drums came about. It wasn't something that I just said, I want to play drums. I actually got the bug from watching my brother and it, just following them. In, um, in Headliner Magazine, to kind of follow what you were just saying, I read where you were saying that there really is no right or wrong way to, um, to play an instrument. And I appreciate that. And we've talked to other musicians that have come on here about that, that I feel like that sometimes a lot of musicians get stuck in their head and they focus solely on mathematically, the musical elements mathematically, rather than going from feel. And I wonder like, how do you, as a musician, to me, like some of the best music I've heard in a long time, it, I feel like it, it comes from a place that you can tell that the musician felt it. Like they may not have necessarily known, all right, play this key, do this, do that. You know, I envision them in the studio, like, you know what I want to hear? I want to hear, I'm, I want you to get funky, I want you to do this, I want you to do that kind of thing. But why have musicians gone away from that feel and got so wrapped up in this, this theory element around, you no, know, mathematically, this has to be here. Like, as, as a person who's a fan of music across genres and hip hop, also, like there are hip hop producers that produce music where you'd be like, wait a minute, where's the kick at? Where's the, where's the hi hat? What's going on here? What's, what's this, that, or whatever? And it sounds wonderful. So, why are we so boxed into mathematically how music should sound? Um, 
back in the 70s, um, you could go to any borough, and, and if you're talking synonymously about musicians in New York City, but this is actually, this is, this is a national event that took place. Back in the 70s, many of the live houses that musicians could shed in closed up. They just, real estate changed, they sold the buildings, you know, not realizing that you're actually setting, shedding down the culture. Right. You know, the, these building owners just said, okay, it's not a club anymore, it's not a 99 cent store, it's not, it's not, you know, it's not the round table anymore, it's now a pizza shop, Right. It's, not, it's not cars off the corner anymore. Right. Yeah. You know what I mean? So demographics change, and the introduction of electronics. Right. So what started to happen, and what you what what we're experiencing was the large influx of musicians that played in church and in clubs. Now <laughs> the club scene is gone. You can't shed anymore because there's nowhere to shed. <laughs> they're buying electronics and they're starting to play at home. They're, they're not doing the studying of their history of what right. I need music music. Right. Here's my proof of that. I can name right now three groups that have come along and changed the face of American music. D'Angelo. Okay. Bruno Mars. Right. I asked that. And Tony, Tony, Tony. How about that? Raphael Sadiq. Yeah, I love, I love Raphael Sadiq. I think but, he's a underrated musician. But to answer your question, why do you love Raphael Sadiq? Why do I love Raphael Why do I love Tony, Tony, Tony? Why do I love Bruno Mars? I love feel. all of these. Say it again, I'm sorry. For the feel and the vibe of when, when they're singing. They, we have, what you the question that you ask is, why is this thing become so technical? It's not necessarily the, the fault of the music. It's the fault of the evolution of music that is causing people not to understand where they've come from so much, as opposed to being in the moment with the equipment that they have, not really studying the instrument from a from a, a, a heartfelt or a spiritual standpoint. Is why you get what you're getting. The majority of the musicians that were successful then, before we were born. And the majority of musicians that were successful now that we really love and appreciate will all tell you 99% of them they played out of church. Right. Then they went to clubs. And they shut in the clubs because they weren't supposed to be playing secular music. Secular music in that church. (laughs) So now all of the musicians that you get playing behind the biggest artists in the world, Rihanna, D'Angelo, on down the line are all church musicians. So they're producing different than the musicians that you're referring to. So, in my opinion, the and I, I hope I don't get in trouble for it, but the life of the music got sucked out, not by fault of the producer or the writer, but just because the evolution of the market changed. Right, right. And I, and I was and it's funny you asked that question, Chef, because I was going to ask you the same thing. You know, how did he feel? Um, what has changed most sonically about music then to now? Because I, I, I just, I, like, we talked about the vibe, the feeling. When you mentioned Rafael Sadiq and D'Angelo, yeah. I, know I'm, I'm, I know I'm about to feel good. I know whatever song they're going to sing is going to put me in the mood. I don't even get in the mood sometimes with music that I hear. Not that it's bad, but it doesn't it doesn't pull the strings 
Because what you what those songs and and we're kind of the, the, you know not not even you young man but but I'm part of a generation where we where there was an explosion of so many music styles and genres all at the same time. No. I don't I don't know what year you were born. Um, seventy two. I tell I tell you proud. I'm seventy two. Seventy two. So during that time is when music started to change as to all the things that I, that I said. But all of the things sonically that we listen to now, because of modern technology, the better EQing, the better processing, the better compression, the better all of that, has that brings the music to a bigger place where when I first started out, it was five guys in the studio playing instruments. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? So, so that's what it was. So now, fast forward, I go and I'm playing, I, I did a track with Biggie, I'm the drummer and player here. And the reason why that track became popular in the hip hop world because it was a natural, organic song that musicians play. You know what I'm saying? The reason why Bruno Mars took over the world is because he gave us the organic feel that you're talking about. Again, you know, these are all lessons that young people can learn from, but the beauty of it all is that we do have all of these different directions that people like as long as we have it and it's there because i love what what i love what bruno mars does some people just go man he's just copying someone yeah we all copy now roger said it best this is a this the way how people learn moving forward in life is you copy other people mm-hmm. you copy the things that you respect whether it's good bad or indifferent it's respectful to you so right. something negative is respectful to that person, if you get what I'm saying. Sure. Like somebody might be doing gangster rap, but some dude out there is not respecting that, and now he's he's copying this person to make it happen. So the, the art of copying is only getting you to a point that you can now take that and do it and make it into your thing. That was good, yeah. You know, Jeff Picaro is a drummer who used to play the total. Jeff Piccaro played on one of the biggest songs uh, ever, a song called Roseanne. He passed away suddenly, um, but in a YouTube video, Jeff Piccaro talks about how he came up with the beat for Roseanne. Everybody knows the song, Roseanna, Roseanna. It's been used on different records, but he talks about, I got a little bit from Bernard Purdy, I got a little bit from this drummer, and he, I respect that because he's telling you I copied these guys, but yeah. then I gave it my own thing. Yeah. Paying you know, homage. Yeah, paying homage. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah. if you pay homage, even if the music is no bass line, but it's funky, you know, just pay homage to where you got it from. Just, just let people know. Even if it's original, say, this is something original. Like D'Angelo came with some original stuff, and everybody started copying him. Everybody <laughs> in the Ivory, <laughs> you know, music soul child, everybody. Yeah. But, you know, they give, they pay homage to D'Angelo. Yeah, that's right. Well, how how'd you end up um how'd you end up linking up with Nile Rogers? Oh. And what what's it like playing for him? And thank and thank and, 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 and let me and let me interject. I don't mean to cut your wisdom, Sean. Thank you for good times. Thank you for Luke. <laughs> thank you for dance, dance, dance. Yeah. Thank you for everybody dance. And the reason why is because I think my mom might be looking. But I knew when my mother was in a good mood. 
You hear them songs around the house. And, that, and that's how I learned to hustle at seven years old, bro. Yeah. You hear them songs around the house, or you hear yeah, them? You know. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, I vote when I first heard Chic. When I first heard the group, I was in a roller skating on Jerome Avenue. We used to do roller skating up on the second floor of the group. And the song The Freak comes on. I never heard it before, but all of a sudden, the, the rink floor got packed. Packed. So I asked this dude, I don't know who he was, but I said, yo, who is this? He said, man, that's chic. That song is called Freak Out. I said, Freak Out. I said, I never heard that. Well, the truth is, the song is called The Freak, but he called it Freak Out, because that's, that's the first thing. Oh, Freak, that's what they hear. So I started getting into um, Sheik's music, and I loved everything that Bernard Edwards and Nile Rogers uh, were doing, and Tony Thompson, because that was the, the, the foundation of the Sheik sound, because Tony Thompson, Bernard Edwards, and Nile Rogers. Um, and then over the years, I, I just kept loving what Sheik was doing, and then they kind of disbanded and started doing their own thing. And then I heard that there was an audition for Sheik. This is long before I got in the band. But this is going back, I would say, 30 years. So I'm like, man, I got to get in there because, you know, Tony wasn't there anymore, and, and then he had passed away. Well, there's a drummer named Omar Hakim. I don't know if you ever heard of Omar Hakim, but he's a very famous drummer that was already poised for the job. But they let everyone know in the city that Sheik is coming back together. So it was kind of publicity stunt slash you know, we're auditioning. Advertising. Yeah, yeah, right, yeah. So they get back together. Uh, they're touring. Omar stays in the band for 12 years. I'm now doing Showtime at the Apollo. Um, and I get a phone call from a drummer named Nathaniel Townsley. I'm at my daughter's school at a play. And I never answer my phone. Like if the song vibrates, I won't pick it up. That's just rude. But I saw who called me. And I know the only reason why he was calling me because he was looking for somebody to do a job for him. Because it wasn't like a social call. I mean, that we're cool, but if he's calling me, it's for work. So I go out to the lobby and you know what's up? He says, yo, I'm, I'm playing with Sheik, um, but I can't do a gig. Can you do it for me? And I knew even if I had a gig, I was going to sub my gig to get to Sheik. I knew that. So he, he said, he says, he tells me what's going on. He says he's doing something with Joe Zawano, which is a big uh, a fusion uh, artist. So can you do the gig? And I'm like, you're not going to do the gig. So yeah, get the tapes. It was uh, Sheik Live at Montrose Jazz Festival. Then my style of, of um, when I get a gig, I listen to what they send me and I listen to the originals. I always do that. Okay. Then I, I write out my notations. I, I make my own charts. Because one of the things that I learned from working with Ray Chu at the Impala is that you need to come ready and you need to be ready all the time. Right. So if they call a song, let's get to it. Right. So that, you know, big up to Ray Chu. So I wrote up my stuff. I get a call. Now wants to hear me in the studio. So we got to do a quick studio before you go do this gig. So I'm like, okay. So we go downtown around uh, 25th Street. And it's just me, the bass player, and then Nile comes in. And I'm like, oh, snap, Nile Rogers. So he comes in, he sets up. Hey, how you doing? Really nice guy. He says, okay, let's take it from the medley. I go through my pages like, okay, let's go. We hit it. 
We're in the medley, two and a half songs in, he stops and says, oh, okay. And starts packing up his guitar. And I'm now looking at him like, like, what did I do wrong? Like, what, what happened? And so I, I said, I said, excuse me, is any, I mean, is everything cool? He said, no, you sound great. I'll see you in Switzerland. And that was it. So we get over to Switzerland. I play the show. And he, and then the singer comes to me and says, now wants to know if you want to do and the first thing out of my mouth was, is this Nathaniel Townsend's gig? Because I'm not trying to take him as a gig. That's not how I'm going to get They cool. said, no, it's not his gig. Now I had been trying out different drummers to see who he wanted for the spot. And he really likes your sound. And that was 15 years ago. I always try to remember about how old my daughter is. Because that was 15 years ago when I started working with Nile Rogers. And it, it was, uh, I got to tell you, now is not only one of the nicest people people you ever want to meet. He's probably one of the smartest people I've ever been around. Wow. And and he's straight from the heart. Right. Good he's right. a good guy. He's okay. very kind. His, his, he, he, I was looking at some of the stuff that he wrote. I didn't realize he wrote like a virgin. Yeah, he 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 he, he actually now produced some of the songs that we didn't know that he did, and I am a victim of that as well. He did like a virgin. He did. Um, I'm coming out, right? Material girl. He did. Yeah. I'm coming out. I mean, there's so many major songs that were now sampled in hip hop that he's responsible. Either him and and Bernard or him. Yeah. And one of the big ones is "Let's Dance" by David Bowie. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The song is fire. And and I'm reading his oh. book. I'm in Japan on tour with another group taking a break he allowed me to take a break from the group and I'm reading a chapter by him and David Bowie and I'm saying I didn't even know that he had anything to do with Let's Dance so I call him on the phone right there I say yo no yo you, you produce Let's Dance he started laughing I said yo we gotta put the song on the show man. the song is so dope it's got he said well listen if you learn the song we'll put it in the show I'm like what are you talking talking about we learned the song he said no if you sing the song we'll put it in the show i'm like that's not what i meant <laughs> so, so i kind of ended up talking i talked myself into a situation so that's i i sing that song in our show but overall i gotta say working with Nile rogers um is a very beautiful place you know, and you mentioned a, you mentioned Ray Chu too. I was gonna ask you about that. Ray, Ch you always hear Ray Chu and the crew. Yeah, that that was a that was a name that I penned for the band when we first started with uh, with Showtime at the Apollo. And working with Ray, um, Ray, Ray has been in the business a long time from the time he was a kid. Actually, Ray started his professional career um, as a teenager playing with uh, Noble Moore. Noble Moore actually pulled him out of school. Wow. to go on the road. Wow. But, but, but this guy is one of the most accomplished uh, composers and producers in the world. Um, he has uh, produced events for Carnegie Hall, for Lincoln Center. He was the musical director for um, American Idol. He's now the musical director for Dance with the Stars. He's the musical director really? for... Uh, yeah, yeah, he's... Uh, if you Google Ray Chu, you'll see. But working at the Apollo with Ray, I would, it was like what I would call, okay. So we get bumped up from doing the Wednesdays to do the TV show, okay? 
sometimes you gotta wish, you gotta be careful what you wish for because you just might get it. No, so, you will, you will get it. <laughs> right, so we get the show, not, no, I didn't know, and I don't think, I think he, when he found out, he was like, okay, we, we got this. They do the entire season, the short time in the parlor, in four days. <laughs> four days. Uh, so that means we would get there literally at six o'clock in the morning and do an entire first week we rehearse with the amateurs, right? Then we gotta run downstairs so we can rehearse for camera blocking. And then we gotta go back upstairs to finish the amateurs that didn't make it from out of town while people are sitting up there eating. And then we we'd run and we grab something to eat, we change our clothes, we run down to be on camera, finish at one o'clock in the morning, and now you gotta be back on set again at six in the morning. Wow. So we would do four shows a day. Talk about accelerating. Joe, that's what we was in the trenches. So that experience has allowed me the um, the opportunity to get in front of other people and not worry because I know I, I literally survived right. working that gig because that's a hard gig. It's a really really hard gig to have. How did you How did you land that gig at the Apollo? I got called uh, to sub for the great uh, Buddy Williams. Now, the reason why I say the great Buddy Williams is because if you Google the name Buddy Williams, you'll see that man's discography. I was a fan of Buddy Williams since I was a kid, and every time I would turn over a record, I was I would be frustrated because I didn't know who he was. I'm like, every record I turn over, Buddy Williams. <laughs> and years later, now, I am friends with this man, and I say that in a, in a very humbling way. Because every time I think about the fact that I'm friends with Buddy Williams, I'm always like, I'm friends with freaking Buddy Williams. Like, he's so dope. It's ridiculous. But I got to call this stuff for him. And when I came, Buddy Buddy works all the time. Buddy's either doing Broadway. Uh, he, he was a drummer with uh, all the recordings for Luther Vandross. He was he always, I mean, he's dope. So I get there. It's a four-piece band. I get on the drums. I'm a quick learn. I read. I taught myself how to read as a kid. So any musicians out there, don't slouch on reading. Teach yourself how to read music. Um, I get behind the drums. They set me up a microphone. I handle one of the, the harmonies. I get a call after. And Ray says, do you want to be in the band? And I, once again, I'm like, that's Buddy Williams did. He said, listen, Buddy's busy. And I need somebody who can sing. You can sing, Buddy's my man. Everything's going to be okay. And that's how I got the gig at the Apollo. Most of the gigs that I've gotten in my life wasn't that I was first called. And I'm, I've always accepted that as the way of right. my life. I've never yeah. been like, man, ain't nobody calling me first. I've never felt like that. Right. I felt like when I get in there, I will show them my value. And if they choose to use me so for the going, then right. that's it. But I'm not jumping up and down mad because they might have called somebody else that wasn't available and then they called me. That that first chair position took many decades. And I'm fine with that as long as I was sitting behind a drum doing what I love to do. Man, never change your phone number. Opportunity definitely calls for you. <laughs> <laughs> never change that number. <laughs> what, what was it what was it like playing your first time in the apartment? It was uh as you could probably guess it was extremely emotional. This is the stage that I sat as a young man with my sister, very young, not even young man, young boy. I couldn't have been no older than nine years old. And I'm walking down 125th Street with my sister, and I see all of these names on the marquee, 
It's like uh, Joe Simon, the, the Mythics, and then it says the Jackson Five. And I'm like, I don't know the Jackson Five. Well, they got a gospel group. I thought for some reason that the Jackson Five was a gospel group. <laughs> so at that time, when you went to the Apollo on the weekends, they had a show, they had a movie, they had cartoons, and then they had another show. That was the, that was a Saturday and Sunday setup. So we get there, ready, getting ready for the second show. The cartoons are on, and I'm sitting stage left, about ten rows back with my sister and her friend Wanda, and they introduce this new group called the Jackson Five. And out comes these five dudes that I literally, my life changed at that moment. I'm like, Wow, you bear witness to that. I got to do that. <laughs> I want to be on stage. Like Michael Jackson at that age was more phenomenal than I've ever seen anybody at any age. He commanded the stage at 10, 11 years old. You're a natural, man. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Just, and if you look at some of the, you've seen the tapes of him like singing James Brown. Yeah. And you just kind of go, how is this little kid? Like, how's he channeling? Right, how's he so fluid? <laughs> right, but, but it's it's just, he's just one of those phenoms like D'Angelo. Right. Like D'Angelo, the same exact thing. When I first played with D'Angelo, when he sat down to play, we were jamming one time on It's Your Thing, Ozzy Brothers, just jamming. Mm. And the placement of his hands on what he was doing, I looked at this kid like, he's been here before. You cannot have that kind of feel at that age unless you've done this somewhat some other's life. Yeah, right, right. You know, and that's why he's such a phenom to so many people, because when he plays, it just comes from a natural, beautiful place of just just groove. Right. And that's when I first that's why when I got on stage at the, at the Apollo, that's when I first met D'Angelo. He did amateur. Mm. And then next thing I'm on his album and been playing for him and he's kind of crazy. But the first time I walked in that, that Apollo stage, I, lived, I almost cried. I, I, I got choked up big time because like history. I, I, Ella Fitzgerald stood here. Yeah. Joe Tex stood here. Percy Sledge stood here. Ooh. You know, yeah. Stevie Wonder stood here. I mean, you know what I'm saying? Yes, sir. It's like, it, it's, you get that. That out of body experience, man. That's, yeah. that's a true. And let's just harbor back onto the Bronx. You come from the Bronx? <laughs> and, and that happened? Come on, man. You can't, was, you can't there, make it up. No, it was, it was, and I never took that uh, experience and that, that relationship again. And, you know, I, I still to this day, it's just a place that uh, means the world to me that I had the opportunity. You know, and I'm very thankful. You know, that I'm yeah. so, um, switching gears to Soul Snacks, created <laughs> by you. Um, by recipes from your grandmother, how important was it for you to bring soul snacks to fruition? Um, the baking, the baking part of my life started at a very young age. Um, as I mentioned to you before, my brother Howard uh, was a big influence in my life, uh, but so was my grandmother and my mother. Um, my grandmother used to live with my aunt, my aunt grew with my mother's sister. And when we were little, we would go over there, and, and me and my cousin Vincent were the two youngest boys. Vincent was a year younger than me. We're little kids. Grampy's in the house. You know, it's just a beautiful thing. And 
my grandmother was big. And what what the job that me and Vincent had being the youngest, and usually being the only two boys there, uh, was the bowl. We just said she'd give us that bowl. She would sit us on where they still had them. She would sit us on the telephone books when we were too small to sit at the table. And she would hand us the bowl, and we would go in on that bowl like we wouldn't believe. That bowl would be, you would clean it, boy. You didn't have to wash it. So, like all of us, there's a certain part of food and family that conjures up these these uh, emotions and memories that you never ever forget. And that's every family right. all around the world. It doesn't right. matter where you come from, what ethnic background you come from. Food and family is just connected. It's a ritual. So, yeah, it is absolutely. So the smells. The, the 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 love at the table, all of that stuff just kept in me, and I wanted to learn more. I wanted I wanted to bake more, so she taught me how to bake. She had chocolate chip and and um, oatmeal raisin. Yes. Then I my mother also baked. I would watch her, and coming going back to the projects, I was a nerdy kid that was smart, so I got skipped from seventh to ninth grade, and that is that that was a blemish. They used to, I used to get teased like you wouldn't believe because I was in the SB class. Wow. So, <laughs> so meeting girls was not something that I readily could just walk up like my friends and just talk. So my my rap was I would bake something. I'd, bake something. <laughs> oh, I'd give them some right. cookies like, you know, if I saw, hey, how you doing? Look, this something I got. And they go, oh my God, that's so good. You was like, an early sugar daddy, huh? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm keeping that. <laughs> <laughs> so I kept it up. I kept up the baking. Um, years after my grandmother passed away in 76, and my mother passed away in 83. And now I'm heavy into doing production and uh, playing. And, and uh, I would just bake. And sometimes I would just surprise my friends just bake some cookies and bake them. But in the early 90s, my, I met my girlfriend from working at the Apollo. And when we moved in together and holidays came around, uh, we tried to, we wanted to give our gifts. So we tried to do it financially, but it just didn't happen. So I said, why don't we just bake some cookies and send it out to them? So we baked the cookies. Sent it out to friends, sent it out to family. Everybody got back. Thank you. You were really great. You should start a business. And that's how we ended up starting the business. Now, as as this, as for fun, we had no name for the cookies. So I said, listen, we from the ghetto. Let's just call them ghetto cookies. My girlfriend. <laughs> My girlfriend, she grew up in the projects down in, um, on, on uh, the east side on 114th. Okay. Um, and I grew up in, in Bronx River, and she graduated. She had a full ride at Juilliard, so she's a Juilliard graduate. So, so yeah. So Ghetto Cookies to me, the name. I, the reason why I love name is because us folks that come from the ghetto, you know, we get a bad rap all the time. Right? All the time. So the fact that she's a Juilliard graduate and I'm playing at the Apollo, I wanted to show what quality comes out of the ghetto. Yeah. And I love the name Ghetto Cookies. But now, I um, I call Melba from Melba's Restaurant, who I was doing an open mic at Sylvia's. She's cousins with Sylvia's Restaurant. And I said, Mel, I got this idea. I want to sell cookies. I want to bring them to the open mic. Do you think it's cool? She says, yeah, you could do it. So 
I wasn't expecting a yes at that moment, but I'm glad I got it because now I got to get this together. So I go to my computer and I'm, I'm actually going to post this at one point. But I made a, a built a picture of my building and I put all these different colors because that's when I grew up, my building had all races of people. Right. Bad label. <laughs> it had a rainbow over the top and it said ghetto cookies made with hard soul and lots of fries. I, I printed it out, I cut it out, I put school glue on it, put it, put it on a brown paper bag, put the cookies in a sandwich bag, put the bag inside, took Scott's tape, take tape the bag, and I took about 20 of those bags down there to Sylvia's to sell with some sample. We get down there, the the, uh, the host is a girl named Shelby. You might know her, Shelby J. She's a singer, she used to sing with Prince and with D'Angelo. Okay. She was the host for the but she announces the cookies. We give out the samples, like little twenty-five bags or so. We have to sell them for five dollars each. And there was a guy at the bar from YSB magazine, and Mel was talking to him. No, oh, he works at the Apollo, and he's tasting the cookies. So he says to me, "I'd love to do an article on you about the, about the cookies." About and I tell him, I say, "Listen, my girlfriend is. She's my partner. She she she's from Juilliard, and she grew up in the projects too. So he's like, oh, this is a great story.'" So he says, what number can you give me? Because I didn't have a website and I didn't want to give my home number. So I called my sister and I said, can I use your pager number? So she gave me her pager number with the pen number. And and when the article came out, that's the number people had. I didn't think he was going to get a whole lot of calls. No. First day the, the article comes out in the magazine, people are getting it. Five calls. Next day, she says, get a pen. You got 10 calls. Next day, get a pen. You got 25 calls. So now my little project department oven ain't working on me. <laughs> so I'm trying to figure out, okay, I need to supply these people. Yeah. What do I do? So my friend across the street, Artie, and his brother Patrice lived in the brownstone, and the mother, one floor was vacant. So I told Patrice, the younger brother, I said, Patrice, ask your mother if I can rent the space because I've got this thing going on and trying to grow. And he looked at me and said, I'm not asking her nothing. You know how strict she is. So you go ask me. <laughs> so I go, I said, Mr. Lamp, this is what's going on. I got all these orders and I got to gut your kitchen and take out the sink and take out uh, your oven. And I got to put in a convection oven. I got to put in the ventilation system and the three-tub sink. And she heard my whole thing. And she sat there silent for about 10 seconds, which was an eternity. And she looked at me and she said, okay. And that was my first facility and that's how the company got started then my girlfriend left me and i had to restart the company that's the that's the, there's a whole lot in the middle there but I can that. sometimes that's what you need to jump start some good to happen man something a little tragedy wait a minute is that why you is that why you end up having to change the name to be honest with you um i wanted to keep the name what it was but when i when i spoke to my attorney he said your partner left she signed off she doesn't want to be she she even well, she lives in switzerland now Oh, when wow. she said she was leaving, she wasn't playing. She wasn't playing. No. So she said, just change the name. So I thought about it. And it took a while for me to come up with the name Soul Snacks. But to me, Soul Snacks and Topics, not only what I was doing as far as the cookies, but also as far as the music. Right. You know, and, too. Yeah. So that's how it ended up being the name Soul Snacks. Man, you got an A-list of support and great reviews, man. I see Ben Middle. I was like, nah, come on, son. Yeah. Eating them cookies, them cookies is good. I was 
was playing with Niles. She does this thing called a, uh, she has a charity called, and she does this thing called a hula bean. It's like she mixes Halloween with the hula. I don't know, but it's a costume party. Right. And I, my calling card for anybody, any entrepreneurs out there, my calling card is to have my cookies there. So when I went down there, I had the cookies. Somehow they ended up in her dressing room. She came out of her dressing room and wanted to know who had these cookies. And everybody pointed to me. And she said, these are amazing. I love these cookies. She says, I'm going to get your information because the holidays are coming. And I'm going to make sure that I use these as holiday gifts. And she did. And it was very nice of her to do that. So um, I've had the support over the years from now Rogers supporting me. For all of my band members and all of my friends and family. You know. So again, to you entrepreneurs out there that are listening, your first line of sales is going to be your friends and family. That's the first line. Okay. Yeah, I was going to say, man, the, the, the cookies, you, that, that recipe must be magic because, you know, sometimes people won't even get past the presentation. If they don't get the presentation in right, they ain't even going to give you a shot. But the fact that you actually, they surpassed the presentation and tasted the cookies, I'm sure your packaging probably got better real quick after that. I had no choice but to get it better. <laughs> now, which cookies? Which cookies are grandma's recipe? Are all it's of two. them? No, no. Uh, what I've learned over the years in baking is to take the base of what we started with as as a formula, because baking and cooking is science and mathematics. There you so go. Any anybody out there who is into baking, they understand exactly what I just said. You are a farmer, brother. You know it's all about the science of what you put down in the soil. Right, right. That's right. It's a science. It's all science. That's it. So the basis of the chocolate chip cookie and the uh, oatmeal raisin cookie is how I ended up with sweet potato cookie. Miami raisin. Miami raisin, the Georgia oatmeal raisin, the chunk of chocolate walnut. We have a lemon love cookie. and, And we just, the sweet potato is our biggest seller. And for years, I wanted to do this other cookie that I said no one's ever done. And we finally got it. Now, my my biggest critic and the taste tester is my daughter. Absolutely. And that girl is critical and she gets on my nerves. Because, <laughs> because she's like this. If I if I if we come if we, me and my wife, she's my partner, me and my wife come up with something and we'll bring it to her. She's the first stop. She, this is exactly what she did. We'll give it to her, and we're literally nervous giving stuff to our own kid. That's how we're, we're like this, looking <laughs> at her. She'll, t- she'll take a bite, and if she doesn't like it, she'll go just like this. No. Yeah. And that's it. No ex- explanation, just mm. like, <sighs> we go back in, in the lab, we try again. On bated breath, you, you know that show, uh, The Weakest Link. Yes, sir. Yeah. You are the weakest link. That's how we. That's how we feel. Right. That's how we feel. So we finally came up with something that we're going to launch. We have a cornbread. Cornbread. We're going to do the nutrition. How about that? Yeah. I've never even no, heard. No one's ever had it, and I've been wanting to do this for a long time, and finally. We had the time to sit down and actually construct a cornbread cookie. And when I tell you it's good, it's good. It's real good. Wow. What's the, what's, the most, what's the most difficult lesson you learned 
being an entrepreneur? The most difficult lesson. Um, I gotta say that I've learned not to look at lessons as being something different. And the reason why I say that is after the passing of my mother and, and, and literally going through severe depression that I didn't know I was depressed for almost 10 years and coming out of it, I came out of it looking at every negative situation and learning how to find a lesson. And the reason why I'm saying this to you is because this is the honest and not true. I know that everyone in this world deals with different levels of pain and heartache. But the thing that I've learned in life is to take every single thing that has happened to you that is negative and search for something good in it. Right. What is good in it? And, I, and I'm going to give you one that's going to make you laugh and then I'll explain the situation with my mother. I got robbed in broad daylight on 3rd Avenue. 149th Street? Yes, sir. <laughs> broad daylight. <laughs> by the Wiz? <laughs> no, it was by, what was that shoe store that used to be right around the corner? Floor right Shine. Thank Lord you. Shine. Thank you. Fred, Fred Dude, I got robbed. <laughs> See, I can talk to y'all real. This is great. <laughs> I got robbed in broad daylight. Me and my boy Aaron, the dude stopped us and pulled the knife out on us. And he was young. He could see that he was just a young kid. He pulled the knife out on us. And when, if you've ever been in a situation like that, you feel immediately violent. Yeah, yo. Yeah, you do. Like, you feel violated. You feel vulnerable. You feel all of these things like... You feel it makes you feel weak. Like what? You 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 feel like you did something wrong to make that happen. And that's how I felt. So after my mother passed away, and after you know those situations just compounding in your head, like why did this happen? A lot of people that go through trauma end up trying to equate it with their fault. Then it, it was their fault. It was something they did. Um, so when my mother passed, she died of cancer, and it was painful. And I didn't know cancer was painful. I didn't. Know. I thought cancer was just something you died. From. Mm -hmm. And the fact that she, as I told you, she was so instrumental in the community. The community started taking a nosedive, and I was like, life is not like that vision it to be. And I went through hell for a long time. So anytime there's a, a just to answer the question, it took ten years to get over it. And I was still playing drums. I was still out there doing my thing, but no one knew secretly. Eternally, right? To deal with. Right. And this is why I'm so proud of people now in our communities that are now talking about depression and mental health yes, openly. Because we all go through it. Yes, but sir. the African American community has looked at that as being a tarnish or a blemish. Yes. You know, that our fathers went through whatever they were going through was actually dealing with forms of depression and PTSD that they wouldn't confront from a from a medical standpoint because they thought it was a blemish on who they were as a man. Right. And that's just my feeling about it. So after dealing with the whole situation with my mother, I've learned to take every situation that is negative and find the lesson in it. So right. the lesson that I learned from that day, finally, was that Okay, they took my money, they took my wallet, but I did get home with the same amount of holes in my body 
that I left <laughs> home with, and I got another day to get this thing right. Yeah. No. Okay. Let's take this back. Okay. So my, I didn't realize my computer was unplugged. Um. So, to answer your question, I, I exercise my thinking not to think as anything as a, as a hardship. But, but the hardest thing that did happen is when my girlfriend left and I had to shut my business down because it was my passion to want to, you know, do these cookies, but I couldn't be in two places at the same time. And it just so happens that when I met my wife, we started the business back again the same way. My first client, full circle, was Melba and her restaurant. How about that? <laughs> yeah. So do, do you take these, learn these life lessons and these hardships, do you bring that and transfer that into your master class? Oh, absolutely. Your, your master class goes from Tokyo to Berlin, back to New York. Yeah. So I can imagine with those, what what what's it like in those creative environments? Because y'all don't just talk about music. The majority of my master class is not focused around um, my playing. I hold my master classes globally. I've done them. Fortunately, I've done them all over the world. But I'm bringing the experiences of what I've grown up with at home in the Bronx to kids in Belfast, to kids in Ghana, to young and old people. Because the goal is not to sit there and play tricks on my drums and show them how bad I am. Right. But to get them to focus and see themselves in a better light through my experience. So I talk about different things, and, and what I expound on the most are the five P's, which are passion, placement, performance, uh, and purity. And purity, yeah. Yeah, I, I left one out. Yeah, passion, passion, passion place, power, placement, placement performance. left my power. Yeah, and so, purity. So after the situation from dealing with my mother is when I actually put those affirmations, if you will, together for myself to have a foundation of something to build on and move forward with. That, I, that anyone can use in any form of life, this is exactly a musician. The reason why I start with passion is because, brothers, as you know, passion is why we're sitting here right now. This is a show that you put together because you were passionate about wanting to get messages and information out to people. You know, and that I could go on about it, but but the master classes are more of a motivation than a performance. The performance to me is the commercial. The <laughs> right. speaking part is the importance. It's the important right to me, Yeah. You're a musician that, that has had the opportunity to travel the world many times over. Yes. Why was it significant to put soul snacks in a community that you walk in? Uh Y'all are Bronx guys, and that goes Dude, first of all, if there was a if there was a, a question award, <laughs> you gonna win the question awards. <laughs> Just when you get up and get it, don't slap nobody. Uh, That's a fact. Um, so I still live in the Bronx. Born and raised in the Bronx. I've been asked many times, why do you stay in the Bronx? And I get very, I mean, insulted by that question. It's like, my answer is always the same. Why not? Right. Okay, I came back to the Bronx 
I, I had a place in upstate New York. And when my daughter was born, I came back to the Bronx to, to, to educate her. Right. Because in upstate New York just didn't, it didn't have the environment that made sense to her forward motion. Look at that shot. So, we were just talking about that. We had that conversation before you came on. Yeah. So she's, you know, my child is, is, is a, she's in Howard University. She's a wonderful person. I love her to death. You know, just like anybody's kid, I want to kill every now and then, but she's still my kid. Right. Um, but the reason why I stay in the Bronx um, is because we are the we are the people to save this 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 barrel and big up this barrel and, and strengthen this barrel through not only our experiences but through our forward motion. So for me, having my bakery in the Bronx and having my restaurant in the Bronx is all about letting. And letting people know that this is the strength of our community, and also uh, to to grow people's lives moving forward. I have a, a 1,250 square foot factory on 134th Street in the Bronx between Locust and Bronx. We are now moving to a 2,200 square foot facility where Spofford House used to be. Okay. They're they developing that area over there. They are. Yeah. Okay. So just a little bit of Spofford Detention Center history. Spofford Youth Detention Center, um, where Mike Tyson was, um, was closed down by the city, state, federal government, and Amnesty International because they said it was crimes against humanity. It was putting kids in solitary confinement for a period of time, things of that sort. So I got a phone call from a very incredible gentleman named Paul Lipson, who said, do you want to be part of the think tank for the space? Uh, was popular and I told him yes so the meetings were held at the banknote building and we just went in with ideas and I had a ton of them and I got a phone call and said believe it or not our think tank won because there were quite a few of them won the bid they right. liked that idea so now Spofford Center is now called the Peninsula and it is a place for affordable housing as well as space for small businesses, affordable space for small businesses. I, um, because of politics, we lost it and then it came back. Wow. But in my new space, I'm not only building a uh, gluten-free, vegan certified area, but our classic area, and then we are putting a culinary art school on the space. My, my partner is a gentleman that I'd love for you guys to Google. His name is Bill Yasses. Y-O-S-S-E-S. Now, the reason I want you to Google Bill Yasses is because, you know, he's he's become, in my eyes, him and, and some of the other people that I've met through him, uh, he's become a bit of a rock star. And the reason why is because Bill um, was the pastry chef for the Obamas and also for the Bush family. He has a TV show on Hulu called Baker's Choice. Really? With, with either Tia or Tamara, one of the twins, is the co-host. Um, he also has a, a, a foundation called One World, One Kitchen. And this is when he became the rock star to me. Because One World, One Kitchen is a foundation that is put together for the sole purpose of feeding the entire planet and people in developing countries. So, my company donated uh, $25,000 to his company for the purpose of getting money directly to the farmers in Ghana 
that resource all of us or many of us source our cacao, our chocolate, chocolate. from where these farmers that have these farms don't usually get the money. I mean, it's so minuscule. So he just came back from Africa. So that's why I call him a rock star. He's a man who practices many creatures. He's, he's the real deal. And to so, have a direct line to your product like that, it's it's yeah it's a it's a big deal because you and I we all know that the way that we take care of our communities is by taking care of our communities. It's not something like it's not something to just talk about. It's something to be about. And I'm not trust me. I I do not have a soapbox somewhere yelling and screaming about what I think I'm gonna do. I just very quietly just get back. Do it. Yeah. Just quiet. I don't I don't want no drink. I don't want credit. Don't don't nah just let me get it done. Just say let me open the school. Let me change some generations and some families. Let me do this because I was given the opportunity. Y'all was I could tell y'all was given the opportunity. And so many others don't have that because they might not have had the parents we had. Right. So how, how do we change that? We come in and we mentor and we teach and we just pass our wisdom on to these folks out here, young and old, to let them see that I'm not just saying this, I'm doing this. Right. Show I'm not just going to say, yeah, you, you need to get off that grass because you're going to make, no, no, listen. <laughs> Yo, brother, let me teach you about that grass. Come here, let me, come here. <laughs> yeah. You know what I'm right. saying? Let me teach you about these tomatoes I'm about to make. So, <laughs> exactly. So yeah. that's that whole circle of life thing that I just, you know, believe in and, and why I just don't look at anything as being a negative. You got to find the good in everything or it'll eat you alive. And, and you'll back yourself into a corner and build your own walls. This is one of the things I talk about masterclass. Don't be your own obstacle. Get out yeah. of your own way. We got enough stuff to deal with out here in these streets. Why be your own obstacle? Yeah, I appreciate what you just said in terms of like, I think like our outreach in the communities. I think that what's happened is that a lot of people are, they, they're engaged in outreach, but they're also engaged in outreach for love, right? They want to get noticed. They want the publicity that's associated with the outreach. And what a lot of times people don't realize is that there are many people that are out in the community doing the work, but they're not seeking the, they're not seeking to get the props. They don't need somebody patting them on the back. They don't need the publicity associated with it. So. I tell people all the time, there are many people, you know, that many places we go, we go into buildings that have been built with endowments of people that you don't even know who, who built this building, who funded this building or whatever it is, and they've done it because whatever, you know, whatever the cause were, they, they were extremely excited or passionate about, but they didn't feel necessary to get on Instagram and take a picture in front of it and say, hey, this is my new building that I just bought because this is how I feel about research for cancer. And I think sometimes like a lot of people in our community sadly get wrapped up into that so i'm happy to hear that you know you're you're very much in the mindset of doing rather than talking about it because i also believe that like you know we, we were saying you were saying with this podcast we started it out of our passion you know we didn't sit down and have 50 million strategic planning meetings about this is what we want to do this is how we want to do it no we said you know what we have these ideas we're going to get in front of a camera and as we as we've gone over the years now we've been doing it for two years we've grown we've gotten better in terms of the questions that we ask, we've gotten better in terms of our production values, we've gotten better in terms of, I think, just just 
knowing what to expect when we get on here and have these conversations. And none of that would have happened if we wouldn't have gotten out of our own way. You know, we had been bogged down in the planning stage forever. So to me, a lot of it is about action. Just, just going out and, and doing something. Um, I wanted to ask you also in terms of buying, like to me, it's a no brainer to have this in the community and how it could be beneficial to the community. But I don't know if everybody in the community has that same level of awareness. So how do you go about getting community buying? How do you get people through the doors to say, you know what, this could be an employment opportunity or this could be an educational opportunity. What, what's your outreach like to, to, to embrace the community and get the middle of it? To be honest with you, that is a very tough thing. Um, one thing that I don't <clears throat> ever get a chance to talk about um, and never have actually invented but I feel like I can you know, talk about it here. The business model for slavery is alive and well. Well, let's just pause. <laughs> let's just pause. Let that sink in real quick, man. I'm going to let the elders speak. I'm not even going to say <laughs> um, you. <laughs> we have to realize that in order for our communities to strive, not just survive, and just survive, but to strive, we have to recirculate our dollars in our community. Okay. Um, and there's ways that we can actually, with, with, the, with the introduction of the internet, there's ways that we cannot do that. Because the community is not just the Bronx, the community is the entire United States. Because we have to let people know this is where if you want these communities to survive, if you want to spend your money on stuff, look for these vendors. Support these vendors. Let them, you know, if they've gone out and tried to bring you something, uh, then try to support them. Um, there is a app that you might not know about, and I hope that you can get this brother on this show. There's an app called Eat Okra. That's the name of the app, Eat Okra. The app is a one-stop for all of the businesses that have registered uh, on this uh, platform for, for black food businesses across the world. <clears throat> yeah. Um, it's an amazing idea. Um, I think if you had more people that knew about it, it would be incredible. <clears throat> Which means that you can search the app, find the food, go to Uber Eats. Once you find that restaurant and eat up and order your food. It's just an informational site. Right, 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 right. You know what I mean? But what I'm saying, we have, as a people, seen it in, in full color what happened with Black Wall Street. And we've been very upset about Black Wall Street. But that wasn't the first time that happened. That's right. Happened it's just that, like with Rosa Parks, who was, a, who was an icon, that wasn't the first time that someone did that. But she got the, she was the one to get the credit and we're thankful for that. But there were other Black Wall Streets that were going to the ground before that. So, even when the people got out of the mindset of slavery and started to build their own community, someone just, and then all of this is jealousy, decided, 
I don't want them to have that. But now, because of social media, it's an impossibility almost to do a Black Wall Street and tear people down like that. Right. You understand? Yeah. That's And it's in the same way that I told my daughter, you have the keys to the castle every single time you pick up your cell phone. And she's looking at me like I was crazy. And I said, no, any information you want is right at the tips of your finger. It's on your iPad, it's on your, it's on your Galaxy, it's on your, on your computer. That's the keys to the castle. When I was a kid before the internet, if I wanted to learn more than my local library, I had to get on the train and go down to Lincoln Center Library. Where now Lincoln Center and the entire galaxy and universe is, is right here in my in my you know so if so what i'm saying is is we can we have to first understand that we don't tear each other down that's the big if you come into my place and you don't like the cookie don't give me a one star call me you tell me what i need to do better Thank yeah. you. i'm so, looking for some questions that, that's the perfect way to segue into that so, you know and, and what's dope about that and what you're doing because I wanted to ask you, you know, talk about your grandma Leola a little bit because she came up oh. at a time in the 20s and 30s where we were thriving that way. We were working together in the community. You know, you spoke of Black Wall Street and there are other places here in the nation that had that had that camaraderie amongst each other. And I thought it would I thought it'd be cool if you didn't mind sharing, you know, with your grandmother coming from Osceola, Georgia, to move to Miami, then migrate to Harlem at a time when creativity was thriving and we were able to live our culture, which transcended into us, yourself, myself, when we had hip-hop, we had jams, we had all these creative ideas that spawned into the world we have now. I think I think it's important that we get that vibe back. Leola, uh, Grampy, and you call that Gramps, and you the Gramps Gramps. Um, was a woman of not too many words. She wasn't someone that was most of the time when I had my grandmother talk, she was getting to the point of something. Straight to the <laughs> um, Or she would be singing a gospel hymn. My, my most vivid memories of my grandmother was either her in the kitchen or her taking a nap, snoring, laying on her side <laughs> with WWRL playing in the background. She always cut it on when it was gospel time. Right as her show. Right. A very religious woman. Um, also raised her children in a, in a very strict household. Right. Um, she, she had a lot of wisdom just like many of our grandparents do because they've seen a lot. So from what I know and me being the youngest, most of the information I got, I got from my, my sister. Right. Yeah. She moved from Osceola, Georgia she was married and raised her kids in Miami. And when they got old enough, the word on the street was that, was that and this, this is when that, that northern migration happened with African-Americans. The word on the street was that you can make money and get a job up north. So the more north you went, so once you got past Virginia and you hit Pennsylvania, and you hit uh, all the other states up that way. Right. There was opportunity up there. There was less uh, racism. Right. You know, so you can see that progression in other communities that have come to America 
the Jamaican community that would come in, someone would come in, pass the word down, that you need to get up here because I just got a job and I, this is how much it's paying. And they go, what? And before you know it, it's the whole community. So my grandmother came up north uh, with my family and then my, um, she moved up here with my, with my mother. And then she eventually moved in with my, with my aunt. And they all settled not too far away from each other. And, and then as they moved from Harlem, Bronx River Houses opened. And the affordability of Bronx River Houses and public housing for most of our families was, was, that, was that legitimate stepping stone from a poverty situation, if you will. Mm-hmm. Not, I'm not talking about spiritually poverty, but the nah. fact that there was, you know, wasn't a lot of money that we yeah. moved into. When you moved into public housing, you got free light and gas, and you got a three-bedroom apartment, and you paid under hundred dollars a month. That was a chance for all families because when I came up, there's a reason why that first logo had the rainbow and all the colors. Right. Because it was Italians, it was Jewish yeah. people, there were right. Spanish people, Spanish all right. in the same, all in the same place because the opportunity was in public housing. My brother has a theory as to why they call it the project. And yeah, he, he my brother goes into this whole deep thing. We gotta but, get Howie on here. We gotta get Howie. <laughs> <laughs> Howie's Howie's a jerk. My brother's a jerk. Um, but um, her journey in bringing her kids, she she always um, tried to keep the family together. You know, like most, I'm, t- I'm telling you the same story in template that you could probably tell me the same story in template about your grandparents. Oh, it's not like a Bronx story, for real. Yeah, yeah. So, so that's, she was a very strong woman. My brother talks about her with emotion every time he speaks about Gabby because she was the one that told him when she she met a couple of his girlfriends before and she was like my daughter nah. so when she met Michelle <laughs> she said to him that's going to be your wife right there. that's going to be your wife and she was right they stayed together. they're still together and the thing about it they, they, the love that they have is so crazy because they're always laughing and enjoying each other it's, it's bananas to just watch the them together but she was a Miss 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 uh, Miss Grampy Leola was a very powerful lady that uh, didn't have a lot to say, but when she said it, you made sure that you listened. She made a statement. Yeah. It definitely made a statement on you because you carried a tradition through, and you're, you're doing so much with your life, bro. I mean, you touched all four corners, all the people that you work with. Your your humble pie, man. I just I could talk to you all day, bro. I, like I need to get your number to chat at you. Yo, brother, trust me, I would be honored. I would be honored because because I can learn some stuff from you about growing. I'll, I'll come up there in a minute, put my hands in my soil, man. Get you some peppers, sure. man. Get you peppers and cucumbers, man. Oh, man. Man, at one point you had um you had your restaurant in the Bronx, also, right? Yeah. Are there any plans to bring back the restaurant? So yes. We opened up the restaurant on my mother's birthday in 2019, uh, August 17th. Uh, we opened to a big audience, doing well, bumping into each other, learning about the restaurant business, um, and then COVID. And 
you and I and everyone else can see, Fauci is in New York. He started, yeah, he's from he's from Benson, he's from Brooklyn. But when he was talking, I'm looking in Fauci's face, going, somebody's telling him to say that. He's not telling the truth. I could see it. You're in New York, and you could see. I'm looking, going. I'm telling my wife, I'm like, no, somebody's shutting him up. Look at him. And I was right. He finally came out and started saying what he was told to say. Right, right. right. So because of that, and this COVID thing, and I'm in the restaurant business, me and my wife was like, we don't know if this is going to kill people or whatever, but we we need to close. We need to close until they give us some definitive answers as to what's going on and what we can do. Because this is all happening really fast. Really fast. So we, we closed down and it was painful and we didn't think we was going to be able to open and we just opened the restaurant. We, we thought it's not going to happen. We don't have the money to refinance uh, food. The first PP, PPP came around. You know who got that money. We didn't get that money and it was like, okay, what are we going to do? So in, in the, like I had mentioned, in the, in, the, in the thinking of reinvention, I, I decided, okay, we got to do something. So I put together a proposal. I came up with an idea and I put together a proposal and I just went out on a on limb and I sent it to Chase back. It wasn't a financial proposal. It was a proposal about serving the first responders with cookies as a thank you from Chase and the Soul Snacks Cookie Company. And they read the proposal. And about three months after I sent it to them, they called me and said, we really like what you have. And then the second round for PPP came. And I filled out, because they didn't give you an index number that you could just file and all the papers pop up again. You had to start from scratch. My wife always says, I don't know how you have that persistent thing in you, but you're doing this again. I sat up for hours putting stuff back in. It's like, it's got to get done. It's got to get done. And then Chase hits me up and says, we have something that I think you'd like. We're going to put you in our Chase machine where you bake for our company and the managers and the uh, presidents and vice presidents to send the cookies out to employees. Yeah. So I'm telling you all this because don't let anybody tell you that you can't do it. Nobody. I don't care who it is. If that should give you strength. Yeah. If somebody comes to you and tells you, nah, man, what you doing, yo? A podcast? <laughs> Let's go watch the game, man. Yo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> You'd be like, yo, I'll tell you what. I'm going to get back with you. Just let me do my thing. And then you, you'll, you'll, you'll be glad that you did. You made because that Success is not how much money you make. It's in finishing the thought. The first time I sold a cookie down the series, I was successful. That's how I see it. Yep. The residuals of that success could be monetary gain. But the fact that you guys are successful here proves what I'm saying. Yeah. It doesn't matter if you got a million people watching you or two. You're successful because you're here and you created this platform. Yeah. So that is that other part about what you said about how can we as a community forward is stop looking at success as a financial gain. Right. But 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 about finishing the thought. That's 
how I feel. I like that. It's like it's look. It's like you and you've been in some of our meetings behind the scenes based on some of the conversations <laughs> we have. We are, we had we had this same conversation yes, last week also, and you know we our other um podcast mate Zane he he um he couldn't be here, but we were talking about in terms of like our vision and how we each may define success in different ways, and I think that sometimes when you have different definitions of what success is it's very easy to get lost and whether you actually successful or not because for me success may be like saying this is something i wanted to start i've started it you know i've aired it i feel successful in that for him or for rob success may be you know what i get thousands of views every time i turn on the turn on the camera um but I, I think I, it's, it's all relative to who it is. But these are the things that I think that we have to think about when we're involved in anything. Because I think that if we don't have a parameter to define what success is, then it's almost like that that dangling carrot over our head, and we never you never have fulfillment around anything because you're constantly chasing. Right. Something. You know. So it, it, it to me is very important to define success and what success is. So right. that, that, like many other people, the the many other businesses, the pandemic. You know, it's impactful. Um, I'm gonna say, man, if you can get back out there and open up that, <laughs> oh, no. that restaurant, man. You no, know, we we um we definitely will. And I know once <clears throat> right now, what's going on with the cookies is is um is so uh is so big. I sat down with a gentleman. I was fortunate enough the other night, just the other night, to sit down with a gentleman who has a product and his product is in every single Walmart, every single Kroger, every single Target, every single PetSmart, every single Petco. This dude has product, he has products all over the world. And I was fortunate enough to get two hours and a half with him one-on-one. And I felt like I was talking to Yoda. And and one of the big yeah, so we, we are going to open a restaurant. But, but, you know, one thing that he said to me, he said, Rob, please understand something very important. You've got to understand that somehow, some way, stars lined up and you got your cookie company into the biggest retail outlet in the world. Picture yourself, this is his exact words, and I'm going to take this with me. So everyone understands it, even as far as your podcast. He says, picture yourself as a flea on the back of an elephant. And you are being carried around by this elephant. But you are a flea. That's how it's in the scheme of everything that's going on. That's how small you and I are, even though I have more success with you. Understand that you somehow got your product into Walmart. Companies try this for decades yeah. and somet- sometimes never get it done. He says, and, and this is when he said my philosophy back to me. He says, it doesn't matter if you sell one cookie or a million cookies, you got into Walmart. And you need to That's take that. That's the money. And I, I understand. I understand because I'm honestly being a musician, I never generated my passion because of money. Anybody who looks at money as a passion, then that's their passion. But I have so many other facets to my 
core that I want to do things that are more valuable as far as forward motion and not necessarily money. That's just me. I'm happy. And I, I'm, I'm not some rich guy, but I'm a happy man. And I'm happy because I, I'm, I'm full of love from family and friends and, and, and just just my, my attitude about life is very enriching and, and very wealthy. So yeah, it's not right. it's not it's not that it's not that I could go out and buy, you know, a, a two door Bentley. You know, that's not <laughs> you know that's not my goal. My goal is to enrich my community, and I know Rich that sounds book. like some. So that's what I'm saying to you. You're in the world of podcasts, but you're here. You're here, and that's where the success lies in the growth of where you are and how you can keep growing. Whether, like I said, it's one person or one million, it's going to be by your content. There was a show, really quick, called Talk Stoop. You remember that show? Do you ever see the show? Talk Soup? Talk, no, Talk Stoop. Talk Stoop. No, I've heard of it. Yo, when you get a chance, Google it. But this woman decided to start a show from the stairs of her uh, brownstone. A show. And she started interviewing local people that nobody knew. And the next thing you know, other people are coming on and the show's getting more popular. Now Denzel Washington is sitting there with her, chilling. That's true. <laughs> on the stoop, talk stoop. But, but my point is, it came from just her going, let me start a show right here on my stairs. And now, you know he what I mean? He took the risk. He took the risk and let me see what happened. And that's why you guys are successful. And ladies and gentlemen, no ideas original. Thank you, Mr. Ralph Rowe, for pulling up, having this conversation with us tonight. Yo, hold on, Sean. I got, I got one more question before we pull out. <laughs> yeah, bro. Why, why? Because why are we on business and all that? Do you still have your production company? Absolutely. I just, yes, I do. I just yeah. produced a group in London called uh, Axmere, and I produced in Northern Italy a group called uh, So Much. What advice do you have or to give to someone starting up, starting up a startup production company? Uh, my advice and the people that I know is just uh, be true to your music and you know uh, just be honest about what you do you know trends come and go you know the trends come and go just just, just be honest with, you, with your music and how you feel about what you write you know I mean that's just how I feel I, I never I never produced or wrote anything that was uh, something trendy in my opinion. I, I, I wrote stuff that I liked and my partners liked and we, you know, we just, you know, now it's by myself that I have fact that production. But, you know, we're, we're, we're I just like producing when I can. Uh, so, just be true to yourself. That's it. That's, that's the answer. Just be true to your music. Don't follow too many trends right. because trends come and go. Be as authentic you know? as you can. And yes. And and if you and if you get to a point that you can support your, your life as a producer, just remember where you came from. Snatch somebody else up. Teach them what you did. Keep them moving. So but before we end, though, tell us where we can get the cookies from. You can go to soulsnacks.com. You can. Uh, that's where we do our classic line. We, if people order there, we bake to order. So if you order today, that's when we bake, and that's when we send it out. Um, sometimes we do get a little backed up. So if someone ordered on a Tuesday, 
the order might not go out to Friday because you know we're a small staff of people, but it's definitely gonna be big fish. Um, and also, if you go to soulsnacks.com, there's a list of Walmart stores alphabetized by state that will tell you where the cookies are. They gave us 789 stores. Kroger hasn't given us their stores yet, but we should know by sometime now in May, and they'll probably be on the shelves in Kroger sometime in July. We just picked up Hilton Hotels, um, Bed Bath & Beyond, Amazon, and um, there's one more, gee, I can't. Um, You're gonna be a full-time baker soon. Yes, sir. Uh, you gonna see me? I'm gonna have like powder all over my face, and, you know, chocolate chips falling out my shirt. And, you know. Like Lucy, right? Remember in uh, that? that uh... Speed it up! <laughs> Thank you, Ralph Rowe. We appreciate you pulling up, man. Thank you, man. Thank you all good. Good in. Yeah, stay, stay no, tuned. I want, I want to give you all my, my number, man. So y'all can hit me because I want to know what you're doing. Real good. Ooh, man.